Well, good morning. Another Christmas has come and gone. And uh, my name is Nick Allen. I'm the family and children's pastor here at Rolling Hills. So I spend a majority of my time here at church with elementary school students who have actually joined us today. So special welcome to all the kindergarten through fifth grade kids who are here today to worship your parents. You know, kids, when I was your age and in church, I, this is what I did every Sunday. We went into big church with parents. In fact, that's what we called it, big church. Anybody here go to big church when you were little? Yeah, that's what we called it. It was kind of fun. I'm really glad that you guys are here today and that we get to celebrate this kind of worship experience together. It'll be good for you guys to see what your moms and dads do on Sunday mornings, which is kind of fun. So today, Christmas is over and New Year's is upon us, and it's the last Sunday of a calendar year. But let's not get too hasty with the whole business and remember a little bit about what made Christmas special. So I want you guys to turn to somebody next to you, um, parent. Uh, your child, your spouse, your friend, or just a stranger that you happen to be sitting near. That's okay. Introduce yourselves. And just fill in this sentence. This is a blank. The best part of Christmas was blank. Go for it. We played this game last night as a family around the table, and so I started out with maybe some really more pointed questions like, your favorite Christmas decoration was, and we all went around the table, we got to my middle child, Nora Blake, and she just goes, everything. And we said, well, your favorite Christmas present was, we get around the table, Nora Blake, everything. We get, your favorite Christmas experience this year? everything because it was it was all good right and you guys had a lot of great experiences too two things happen to me each year around christmas time they're actually polar opposites from one another on both sides of the spectrum of emotions that a person might feel related to the hysteria of christmas consumption first i get completely disgusted by all of the fads and the manipulative marking that attempts to get my children to want things that we don't have it just kind of happens fortunately for us um dvr means that they don't see commercials so we're already in good shape as far as that level of advertising goes. And, you know, we're a homeschool family, kind of weird, it's okay. Um, so we don't even know about some of the fads that are out there in the world, which is good. Um, I would be really grateful to you for not telling my kids that Frozen has anything to do with um, something other than what they might get at Sonic. Just kidding. We know all about Frozen, don't we, girls? They're over here somewhere. Yeah, yeah. My favorite character is Olaf, Team Olaf. Um, anyway, beside that... I get all mad that the world is worldly, um, and then I realize that getting mad at the world for being worldly is like getting mad at summer for being hot, and it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Um, it's just a frustrating thing to realize that Christmas and the true meaning of it is cluttered up by all of the consumerism. And then the second thing happens to me, which again, I told you is the polar opposite is, I celebrate all the things I get. I actually get a little nostalgic about things I've gotten throughout the years. I look back on the timeline of my life and realize, oh, what was the best Christmas present of, you know, second grade or fourth grade or senior year? I actually did an internet search this week of all of the most popular toys throughout the decades. And I learned a couple of things about those toys. First, I learned that toys a long time ago had a far greater shelf life. They had a whole lot more longevity than stuff we have today. Um, the hula hoop, 1950s, that thing is still going. I mean, people are still getting those. Also, Barbie hasn't aged a bit. She's still around for 60 years, right? Mr. Potato Head, 1950s. Again, long shelf life toy. And also Play-Doh, although I wish it kind of wasn't. I feel a little bit about Play-Doh the way I think about mayonnaise and craft singles. 
I also, and I realize that I'm in kids' ministry, and so we have Play-Doh all the time, and that doesn't make a whole lot of sense for me not to like it, but I don't like the way that it smells or makes your fingers feel after you've touched it, and I definitely don't like it when kids blend the colors together and they start to become that really unappetizing shade of brownish gray. It's not, okay. So toys have gotten, they have a whole lot more shelf life way back in the day, and they've also gotten increasingly weird. Um, Here's an example. G.I. Joe, 1964, kind of normal. It's an army man, right? 1980s gave us Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Now, I'm a fan, but when you step outside of what it is and start to realize, this is just strange. It's a bunch of turtles, and they're life-size, and they talk, and they've been trained by a rat to do ninja. The whole thing is just kind of bizarre. I also, um, I'm okay with Lincoln Logs and Legos. I think those are great. They should stick around for a while, but virtual Tamagotchi pets that you push a little button every time they need to be fed, I just think that's strange. I don't understand it. I also don't know why you would get me started on a toy named Bratz and why we would name a toy after a word that I got in trouble for saying when I was a kid. That doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And I'm really thrilled that Teddy Ruxpin has not come back on the circuit because in the 1980s, that joker was around and I think it was a really creepy bear. I mean, I'm glad kids aren't bringing those to church on Sunday mornings. The nostalgia of the toys that we played with growing up really does nothing more than remind me of how fast it's all happened and how quickly it's happened, not in my life, but in the lives of my kids who are growing up far too quickly for me. As a dad, I find that, and and it reminds me that life is such a vapor, that it's here today and it's gone tomorrow, and that we as parents or adults, and, and really just in all generations of believers, have a responsibility of valuing the thing that matters most with the time that we have, and that's Jesus. I really hope that you have made much of Christ this Christmas. I really hope that he has not played second chair to any of your other holiday celebrations. And I'll just say it. I really hope that Santa and Elf on the Shelf have been frequently upstaged by Jesus this season and that he hasn't played second chair to either one of those. You see, Jesus changes everything. It's not just a song we sing. It's not just a series title for a couple of sermons at the end of the year. It's actually the reason that we exist as a church. And the reason why I stand here as a believer in Jesus Christ and a pastor of his gospel is because Jesus changes everything. And as we look towards a brand new year in just a couple of days, we're all still spinning because we can't believe that 2014 is coming to a close. Because we do feel like it was just yesterday that 2013 ended. But here we are at the cusp of a brand new year. And my hope and prayer for that is that we would all be so captivated by Jesus. I hope that we can stand really so aware of the presence of God in our lives that it changes everything about the way that we purpose 2015, everything about the way that we do life, everything about the way that we relate to others, everything about the way that we spend our time and our resources, how we study scripture and how we view life and love and relationships and how we deepen our walk. It should all be governed by our view of God's holiness and Christ's sacrifice because it's the sacrifice of Jesus that gets us knowledge of God and it's knowledge of God and his holiness that affords us life change. I hope that we can be captivated by that, but my fear, the cynic inside of me says that we, we might not. Charles Spurgeon was a, a pastor and a theologian from the 1800s and he's still widely regarded today as one of the greatest preachers of all time. He's still very quoted and widely read Incidentally, his middle name is Haddon, which I think is a really good name. There's a lot of pregnant people here right now. You might should name your baby Haddon. That's just my suggestion. It's a really good one. Um, if you feel like somebody else is going to get to it before you do and you don't want there to be too many Haddons at church because it's not very creative and it wouldn't be original at that point, then come see me after and I'll tell you the name of other 19th century theologians. You can name your kid Friedrich or Soren. 
Soren is a good gender-neutral name, so you can go either way. It's good with that one. So all of that, rest assured, Charles, Spurgeon, Charles Haddon Spurgeon said this. He would rather be blind and deaf and lose his sense of taste and smell than to not love Christ. To be unable to appreciate him is the worst of all disabilities and the most serious of all calamities. I can't think of a better frame for any New Year's revelation we might have or resolution that we might make than that. And I can't think of a better passage of scripture than the one we'll start with today to help frame up the way that you and I view 2015. It may not be the quickest route to get there, but it will be the most scenic. If you have your Bibles today, turn with me to Luke chapter 2. We finish up this chapter today with the final two verses. You know, last week, Pastor Jeff taught about how Jesus got lost from his parents. And the truth is that Jesus wasn't really lost. He was exactly where he was supposed to be. It was just his parents that got their signals crossed and forgot where he was. And the challenge with that is that you might have been there too. I have actually been there recently. It was in this warehouse. My wife, Susan, and I, we have three kids. They are now eight, six, and two. Um, When the oldest was seven, we had an event here at the church. And the girls, as in their habit of doing, asked if they could stay late and ride home with me because we come in separate cars. I come early, I stay late. You know, it's the whole nine yards. I work here. It's fun. So anyway, they said, Dad, can we stay late and ride home with you? And I said, sure. It wasn't going to be a big deal and it wasn't going to be too late. So it would have been fine. And before I knew it, Actually, without me knowing it, my oldest had changed her mind and decided to ride home with her mom, and neither of them told me. So I'm looking all over the warehouse, calling her name out loud, circling the auditorium all over the building, searching for Lily Kate pretty frantically, thinking, where in the world is she? I'm enlisting the support of other staff members and volunteers who've stayed. We're trying to find her, and we're looking everywhere for her. I'm calling my wife no fewer than 34 times and leaving 18 messages on a cell phone that's buried in the bottom of her pocketbook, which I often tell her looks like an episode of Hoarders Buried Alive. She can't hear it or find it, and we don't talk, and I get home, and there's Lily Kate playing upstairs. I started reading Luke chapter 2 a little differently that day, because it can happen, and it definitely freaks you out. So on the edge of that story, we find out what happens to Jesus next. You've got your Bibles now. They're turned to Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 51 and finishing the chapter. It says, Then he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was obedient to them. His mother kept all these things in her heart, and Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and with people. Would you pray with me today? Holy God, our prayer is that we would be transformed by the reading and hearing of your word today. And that our lives would look differently when we leave than when we came. Because we've heard from you. Father, my prayer is that you would move the speaker out of the way. And that your Holy Spirit would be free to speak to individual hearts and lives of the people today. So that we might be more like you. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. So in verse 51, they leave Jerusalem. They go back to Nazareth where Jesus grew up and he was obedient to them. Obedient to them. That's a good one because, you know, it was a command in the Ten Commandments that children must obey their parents. And so we learned that after Jesus had so subtly informed them who his true father was and why he was supposed to live a life according to his father's business, that part of that meant submitting to their human authority. You see, Jesus could not have fulfilled the law without first adhering to it. And that would have included the fifth command. That would have included children, obey your parents. If you're a kid in the room today, I'm really glad you're here to hear me say this in front of your moms and dads. Children, obey your parents. That's right. We tell our kids, and we also tell you guys here from time to time, this sentence. 
Second time obedience is not really obedience. You know what that means. It means if your parents have to tell you multiple times to do something, that's not really obedience. It doesn't count. It's not the same as doing it the first time. Another kind of obedience that's not really obedience is huffy obedience. I'll give you an example. Ugh, and then you do what they say. Like, if you do what your parents say, but it's accompanied by, Ugh, then that's not really obedience either. It's also not obedience if you roll your eyes back in your head, which my mom told me when I was little, if I roll my eyes back in my head, that they would get stuck there forever, which I think is an old wives' tale and is probably not, like, medically true. However, it is a scary thing to say to your kids whenever they roll their eyes back in their heads that they might get stuck that way. So if you roll your eyes back in your head while you're making your bed because your mom told you to, that's also not obedience. Okay, mom, that's also not obedience. The other kind of obedience that's not obedience is obedience just to get a reward. If you obey just because you want a reward, that's not obedience, that's bribery. Another kind of obedience that's not obedience is obeying just to avoid a punishment, which some of you might do. You know that if you don't obey, you might get grounded, or you might lose your PlayStation, or you might not get to play with your friends, or maybe some kind of... That's also not obedience, that's coercion. You see, obedience is willingly, willingly, emphasis on the willingly, submitting to someone's authority just because it's right. And it's right for you to obey your parents. Jesus obeyed his. And the Bible tells us to. Jesus obeyed his parents first to fulfill all righteousness. In Matthew chapter 3, he was an adult and he was getting baptized by his cousin who didn't want to baptize him at first because he thought he wasn't good enough to do it, which he wasn't because John the Baptist wasn't as good as Jesus for sure. But Jesus said to him in chapter 3 verse 15 of Matthew, allow it for now because this is the way for us to fulfill all righteousness. His baptism was a sign of the total fulfillment of the law, as was the way that he lived his life, including his submission to human parents. Colossians chapter 3 says, Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. We know that Jesus wanted nothing more than to please his Father. He said it in John chapter 6, I came down from heaven not, not to do my will, but his will, the will of the Father in heaven who sent me. Jesus came to fulfill righteousness. And one of the ways that we live out the righteousness that he's called us to, kids, is by doing what your parents say. Parents, I'm glad you're here today too, and other believers, because I want you to hear me say this. If you're a parent in the room, parents, obey your God. You see, your children should obey you just because God said it and because it's right. But it's so much easier when you make it worth it. When you make obeying you a path towards godliness, not worldliness. You see, obeying you should not be an exercise in behavior modification so that your children will be better than the other children down the street. In fact, it should be a path towards discipleship to make them more like Christ. <clears throat> obeying you should make them more like Jesus and not just more acceptable in the world. In fact, obeying us should make them far different from the world. Check out the models that God chose for Jesus. They didn't have degrees or experience or age or wisdom, but they did live obedient lives. Listen to Mary's response to the angel telling her that she was going to have a baby God's son in Luke chapter 1 verse 38. I am the Lord's slave. May it be done to me according to your word. That's what Mary said. She obeyed God in spite of the shame. Regardless of the shame. You see, submitting to God's authority in her life in that moment would have caused her great shame. She was having a baby and she wasn't married. She was also submitting to a possible death sentence because she could have been punished for being found with child. And regardless of the shame, the ridicule, the gossip, the rumors, the words, the whispers, 
Mary submitted to God's authority, willingly and obediently. Look at Joseph in Matthew chapter 1, verse 24. Listen to his response to the angel telling him to go ahead and marry Mary, who was having God's baby. When Joseph got up from sleeping, he did as the Lord's angel had commanded him. He married her. I love that their responses were different. That Mary gave a beautiful declaration of her obedience to God, and Joseph just did it. It's like women, they have this great, grandiose expectation. This is what I'm going to do for them. Men just go out there and do it. It's like men and women, they're different. But they both were obedient. And Joseph was obedient regardless of the sacrifice. For Joseph, divorce related to adultery in this circumstance was not an option, but a requirement. So he had two choices. A public divorce or a private one. One which would allow him to maintain personal righteousness and also save her from public disgrace and even death. And then enter the angel who gave him a third option. Go ahead and marry her anyway. And it would have been a big sacrifice. It would have been a big commitment. There would have been fear involved. But Joseph obeyed anyway. What if you and I all covenanted together to obey God regardless of shame? You see, some of us parent with a herd mentality for fear that if we don't parent our kids like everyone else, then we'll be shamed for it. I want to kind of redeem a word that's been lost in our culture. Maybe it'll come back to be better regarded in our lifetime. Some of us are afraid to shepherd, and I'll just go ahead and say it, shelter our kids from things of the world because of fear of what others might think. For the shame that it might mean for our family to be different and to do things differently. What if we decided to obey God anyway? What if we all covenanted together to obey God regardless of the sacrifice that it took? The sacrifice of our dreams, the sacrifice of our status, the sacrifice of our objectives. Some of us parent with a herd mentality out of fear that it's going to cost us too much to give up our dream of raising the next Taylor Swift or RG3 so that we might instead raise the next... Anjze Byaksu, who incidentally became Mother Teresa, or even the next Charles Haddon Spurgeon. There's a really good middle name in there. Kids, I want you to hear that Jesus obeyed his parents. Parents, I, I want us to hear as adults that Jesus' parents obeyed God. And oh, the difference that makes. And then, after verse 51, which talks about obedience, we get verse 52. This really fast-forward statement that covers the remainder of Jesus' childhood up into his adult life. Really, the next approximate 18 years of Jesus can be summed up with just this one verse. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and with people. It's like the fast-forward versions of those TV shows where somebody has a baby one season, and then the very next season, they're all of a sudden being played by eight-year-old twins, and they've grown up really, really fast. Well, we're growing up fast. Your kids are growing up fast. Well, Jesus grew up really fast. It just took one verse. But we get a lot in that verse. In it, God gives us a recipe for how we are to grow in relationship to him. Immediately after reading it, you're left asking the question, maybe I was asking the question, how could Jesus, who created and knew everything there is to know, increase in wisdom? Well, it's because he was both fully God and fully man. It's not a 50-50 split like we're so inclined to think, but a really 100%, 100% reality in his life. And the pattern of growth that Jesus had obtaining new wisdom does not abdicate his supremacy as Christ. Instead, it indicates his supernatural willingness to subject himself to human confines. The NIV reads, and Jesus grew. The whole one that I read for today says, and Jesus increased. Both of those words, increased and grew, are the Hebrew word prokopto, which is way more fun to say than grew and increased. 
you guys know, we tell the kids that the Bible was written in Hebrew Old Testament and in Greek New Testament. There's also some Aramaic in there, spurs between the two, and it's kind of fun to read. But it's really neat to go back to the original languages and figure out what a word actually means. Because it's not just, and Jesus grew. It's really, and Jesus kept growing. It's not, and Jesus increased. It's, and Jesus kept on increasing in wisdom and in favor with God and man. Jesus increased. He kept on Copto. It's way more fun to say than grew and increased. And it means that he kept on doing those things. And it's the way that we're supposed to grow too. And we get these four areas easily defined for us that you and I might grow for a new year to purpose our lives according to God's word. The first one is wisdom. It's godly choices. Michael Hyatt defines wisdom as the mental and emotional intelligence applied to the study of life. It's being life smart. You see, it's not enough to know the right thing. You actually have to follow through and do it. That's what makes the difference between foolish people and wise people. And the Bible gives us that over and over again, that the definition between foolish people and wise people is not that one knows the truth and the other doesn't. They both know the truth, but only one follows it. You see the wise person? He takes initiative. He makes what's often the hard choice and actually follows through. We're left asking ourselves the question, what is it about my 2015 that needs to increase in wisdom? What kind of godly choices am I being called to make this year? What sort of godly choices does my family need to make this year? How can we keep on increasing in biblical wisdom? The second is stature. That's your physical health. And this is a big one because I'm learning that every other area of my life is affected by how I treat my body. How I engage and what I will do to to create the healthiest possible version of me. Martin Luther King Jr. often quoted an unnamed minister with regard to how far civil rights had come. I love this quote. I think it applies to just about everything in life, or at least I hope it does. It says, Lord, we ain't... Okay, kids, I know this is bad grammar. Don't talk like this when you leave here because your parents will correct you and create conflict in the car and you definitely want to be obedient. So like, I'm just saying it because it's a quote. It's not because it's part of my regular vocabulary, or at least I try for it not to be. And if it ever is, you can call me on it. I promise. Okay. So Lord, I probably should say Lord. It's a real stuff. Lord, we ain't what we should be. And we ain't what we gonna be. That's also bad grammar, but just hear me out. We ain't what we gonna be, but thank God we ain't what we was. That's a statement worth applying to every area of life. I'm not what I should be. Um, And with hard work, diet, exercise, and an emphasis on what it means to be physically healthy, I'm not what I'm going to be. But thank him that I'm not what I was. And I want to apply that to every area of my life. I'm not where I'm going. But I'm also not where I've been. And in my relationship with Christ, that involves me growing up to be a fully devoted follower of Jesus... I can apply that to my physical health because every area of our life is affected by our physical health. Emotions, mood, fatigue, they're all affected by how we treat our bodies. And each one of those affects my ability to serve, to love, to give, to sacrifice for others. Stature. What is it about your 2015 that needs to look different in terms of your physical health? What are the things that you need to start doing or stop doing that are going to create a more healthy version of you and in turn, a person that's more apt and more willing and more able to serve God? Third, says Jesus grew in favor with God. That's spiritual growth. To grow in favor with God for us means to grow more like him in our character, 
more dedicated to him in our service, and more knowledge of him in our worship. How can we grow in more knowledge of God just because of our worship? That's singing songs, right? Mm -mm. Worship is ascribing worth to God. It's telling him that he's awesome. How can knowledge help that? Because the more reasons I know about God that he's awesome, the more reasons I have to tell him that he's awesome. The more knowledge of God in me increases, the more opportunities I have to tell him that he's great because I know more about him. I want my knowledge of God to increase. And that's one of the ways I'll grow in relationship with him. You're not in relationship with people that you barely know. You're in deep relationships with people that you know deeply. We want to know God that way. We want to be more like him in character. We want to be more dedicated to him in service. And we want more knowledge of him in our worship so that we can tell him the many, many, many reasons that we have to be grateful for him and the many, many, many things that are great about him. I want that to be a key area of growth in my life in 2015. Do you? Then what about your life needs to be set in such a direction that will help you grow spiritually? And finally, it's favor with man. And I'm going to say that's favor with a covenant community. I'll boil that down further and say that's favor with your church. Michael Hyatt also writes that he has some regret for focusing too much on career and not enough on interpersonal relationships over the last six years. He says a company can fire you, but it's a lot harder for your friends and family to do the same. How are you growing in relationship to a covenant community of other believers? With your small group, with this church body, in the areas that you serve, in the ways that you give. How are you being more connected to the body of believers here so that we can do what Hebrews describes as spur one another on towards better following Christ? See, I want to be surrounded by people who spur me on to follow Jesus better. And I want to be one of the people in your life that helps you follow Jesus better. In fact, I want it to be said of all of us that others are closer to Christ because they know us. And that's going to happen as we grow in favor with the covenant community of Believers in Jesus. And it's also going to affect the way that we're able to reach out to others who don't know Jesus. This verse gives us a roadmap for how we can grow as believers and follow him. And make no mistake, it is a total package. It's not enough to identify one and not the others because it's the fullness of life, the whole thing. I read this in my small group study this year. Shout out for the Kafori small group. I heart you guys. We'll see you in 2015. It says this. Much of what we even call Christianity is not characterized by preoccupation with the glory of Jesus. In fact, we may need to quietly confess to ourselves that we do not find our hearts held completely captive by his splendor. A person may be dead spiritually and still be active in the local church, emotionally moved by sermons, songs, and testimonies, loyal to right beliefs about the Bible, sacrificial in service, faithful in Bible reading, zealous in missionary efforts. Yet one of the timeless marks of spiritual death is spiritual blindness toward the nature and person of Jesus Christ. It may be really simplistic, but one of the transactions that takes place in our lives through salvation is the replacement of our self-focus so that we might focus more intently on Christ. Being aware of Jesus and possessing in our life the power of the Holy Spirit who in his presence daily sanctifies us. That makes us more holy so that we can be more like Jesus. It's a process that has to happen in the life of every believer. 1 John 2.6 says, The one who says he remains in him should walk just as he walked. You might say that the one who remains in him should grow as Jesus grew. Being like him is what makes us different. And that distinction has been carefully woven for us throughout God's redemption in the entire Bible. All of scripture, from the very beginning, everything in faith is about distinction. It's about us being different. It's about us being holy. It's about us being set apart 
for God's good purpose so that we may be different and special for him. Exodus chapter 11. On the eve of being rescued from slavery, God told the Israelites that he was doing this so that you may know that Yahweh makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. He was setting his people apart, making them different. He told them to paint blood on the doorposts of their houses and that when they did, the oldest firstborn would be spared. In Exodus chapter 12, he says, the blood on the houses where you are staying will be a distinguishing mark for you. God has always been about setting apart for himself, himself a special people for his purpose. That's why he sent us Jesus, to make us distinct, to let us be part of his family, to set us apart and make us different. Modeling our growth after Christ is no different. It's God's plan to further our distinction. The continuation of his perfect plan to make his name known better through a people of his choosing and through his redeeming, we are to be different than the world around us. And we'll do that when we walk in lives of unparalleled obedience and when we concentrate on key areas of personal growth. If we did that, we would all be so weird. But we would be more like Jesus. And it would be so worth it. Would you pray with me? Oh God, we are just overwhelmed and overcome by your goodness. Father, our desire is that we would be a people who live lives like your son. That every day we would be made more into the image of Jesus. And that in becoming more like him, we would draw even more attention to you. Father, change us. Change us with Jesus. Change us, God. Work in us whatever you have to work to make us more into the people that you've called and equipped us to be through the power of your son. We want to marvel at him. We want to be captivated by him and live lives totally in awe and in love of him. Do that in us, God. As we look towards a new year, we want to be a new people, completely changed by your son and living lives in complete worship of him. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. We have an opportunity today as we continue worship to really celebrate that distinction. Um, the symbolism of the blood on the doorposts was the Passover celebration that Jesus celebrated throughout his life. Well, on one special Passover celebration, he, he did it differently. He called his disciples to look at the bread in a new way and to look at the cup in a new way. We call this communion or the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist. And we celebrate that today. This is a really special opportunity because kids are in the room with us. And they're not often in the room with us when we celebrate communion. So it's an opportunity for us, by the way that we worship, to model for them who Christ is. So together, we're all invited to the table um, to take part in the bread that's really representative of Christ's body that was broken for us. And to take part in the cup that's really representative of Christ's blood that was shed for us. And kids, when they come to the table, they'll get to see um, adults modeling for them what that is. 
Now, historically, the church has invited believers to the table. That means people that have professed their faith in Jesus Christ and and declared him Lord over their life and experienced salvation. And so for the kids in the room who have had that moment and now live out a testimony, we invite you to the table, too, to experience communion with your parents. And for other kids in the room who haven't come to that determination in their life, still bring them to the table and use this as an opportunity to model for them your faith in Christ. How powerful for them to get to see the reason why dad does this snack. The reason why mom takes this cup is because we've put our faith in Christ. And because he saved us, our sins are forgiven and we now belong to Christ. We celebrate this today as as a worship experience, but as a distinguishing mark for us who are believers in Jesus. You see, God's good gift didn't stay a baby at Christmas. It grew up to be a sacrifice that would save us from sins so that we may know him. And this is a distinction. Father, we ask that you would take this worship experience and that you would be pleased with it. Jesus, that you would be honored and glorified by it. We, we take this communion today as a proclamation of your death until you return. And we know that just as certain as you came at Christmas, you're going to come again one day as a king and call your people back to yourself. And we're so happy to be your people. And we're so happy to worship you today in this way. Father, as moms and dads come to the table, as adult believers come to the table and and take these elements, may it be a testimony of what you did for us. As kids experience it, maybe for the first time or maybe just witnessing, may they be drawn to you too. May it spark questions and conversations on the way home about what it means to become a follower of Jesus and dedicate our lives to him. It's in his holy and precious name that we pray today. Amen.